Hi there, come up on the porch. We're just sitting here watching it rain and talking about Louisiana. I'm Bruce McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. And this is the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, Episode 500, for December 17, 2022. Welcome back, and hot dog. I just got to announce this to my cousin here about 10 minutes ago on the phone with him that this was... You know, our big monumental night, you know, 500 episodes in nine years and counting. So Yeah. Pretty amazing. Really, there's some in-between numbers, like uh, 105, 105, I didn't want to renumber the whole year. <laughs> okay. Yeah, yeah. So we actually have more than 500, maybe 510 or 20, but 500 is officially numbered episodes. And all new material, right? Episode 500 of the Common Era, man. Mm-hmm. <laughs> this is like and, uh, BP, uh, BP, and then you know, in the year of our podcast, you know, <laughs> uh, we've managed. Sometimes if somebody passes away or somebody gets a big um, honor, we'll sometimes replay another an old um, episode from during the week. But we haven't had any episodes, you know, a regular Friday Saturday episode that uh, didn't have new concept over. How many years is this? Uh, yeah, nine I, years total. I mean, nine, well, nine years for the podcast, and then yeah. ten years for the big project. So in May it'll be ten years for the uh, podcast. So it's a little over ten and a half. Um, but this week we kind of have a special topic. When I have, uh, I'm um, coming late to, but really interested, in, and that is uh, we're having our old friend Ed Bradley back to discuss Meliton. Meliton. Um, or Merliton, uh, <laughs> there's a lot of ways to say it through these. Um, kind of green, pear-shaped, uh, squash-like vegetables. That, um, yeah, called a vegetable pear by my aunt. I mean, that's yeah, yeah, called yeah. Meliton vegetable pears. That's the way <clears throat> tried to uh, market it. They tried to get, it's really easy to grow, apparently. They put out a lot of food, uh, so they're a good way to, you know, get some calories, although, the problem with the melaton is they all come in at once. It got this stacks and stacks of the stuff. But, you know, still, um, um, it really caught on in New Orleans. And maybe, I don't know, did the Cajuns eat melaton? Yeah, that, that's what I was saying. I mean, the, my aunt was German. Mine and Billy, my cousin, our aunt, one of our aunts was German Cajun. And they grew those things like mad out west of Baton Rouge. Mm-hmm. I mean, she, they had a climbing vine of those things out, you know, right there, not far from their front door, their big, big uh, three or four bedroom brick house. And we'd, I'd never seen them before when I was a little kid. So she was bragging about those things to my folks and telling what you could put those, what kind of dishes you could put them in. And I looked at one. She handed one to me, to, you know, look at as a eight or nine year old, you know, grade school uh, kid. And it looked like a pear. I mean, it's a little yeah. rougher shape, but it's, it's the same, same general shape of a pear. Well, and there can be other colors, and some varieties have uh, thorns sticking out of, of them, but the ones that grow around New Orleans generally are green and generally are smooth because people don't want to mess with the spines. You know, it's just one more chore. So, yeah. And um, for this area, it's not something that people talk about with the Tourists coming in, or folks like that, it's a home cooking kind of thing. I've, mm-hmm. I've 
talked later about uh, how I never have seen one of these on a menu in a restaurant, as many restaurants as I've been to uh, in New Orleans. Um, and some of the, you do find like uh, the big chefs, they'll have uh, a recipe or two, either for stuffed malcom or uh, what's the other thing, uh, dressing. You can make dressing, mm-hmm. a casserole, if you will. Um, so yeah, I think that's. I think that was what my aunt made, and yeah. I have to wonder if, because again, her family were you know French-speaking Germans is what they were. Like like you get along that German coast, and they lived slightly inland from the German coast. Uh, again, kind of west of Port Allen, and I have to wonder if the Germans cooked those things, or if it was the French, or a combination of two, or maybe people whose family were African American. I don't know. I really don't. It's just so they have. But she said they were common around. You know, around where they lived, you know, people go in a lot of. Central and South American uh, vegetable. Yeah, it's a gourd. It's in the gourd family with with squash and pump pumpkins right. in that family too. And it made its way here with Hispanics who call it chayote, and um, French speakers call it meliton, and most of those came from Haiti. So uh, those were, you know, the two groups of people that brought it here and still eat it. Um, you know, yeah. Um, if you're not in New Orleans and you want to try this stuff, uh, check your local um, uh, Hispanic or South American uh, grocery store, and they may have it. Um, or even your farmer's market might carry the things, too. I don't huh? you know, because nowadays farmer's markets are pretty ubiquitous all over Louisiana and really all over the place pretty much. So your farmer's markets might might be carrying that in, in some of their produce. Yeah, if they're um, <clears throat> where you are. Um, that would be a good place to find them. So, well, yeah, you can tell I'm already listening. <laughs> excited about Melaton. But first, this week in Louisiana history. Okay, the page disappeared. Let me call that back up. So, <clears throat> this week in Louisiana history on December 17th, 1803, a momentous day. American troops first arrive in New Orleans to accept Louisiana. So, this is in the run-up to the transfer. Mm-hmm. Now, for this week in New Orleans history, James Carroll Booker III. Born December 17, 1939, uh, passed away November 8, 1983. He was a New Orleans rhythm and blues musician. Born in New Orleans, his unique style combined rhythm and blues with jazz standards. Musician Dr. John described Booker as the best black gay one-eyed junkie piano genius New Orleans has ever produced. Wow. <laughs> and that's high praise from Dr. John, by the way. Yeah, yeah. He's a great pianist himself. Now for this week in Louisiana. So this week in Louisiana, we highlight the Precious Memories uh, Christmas Tree Farm. God, makes you think of the old hymn, doesn't it? Uh, right. This is, at, and, <laughs> this is at 455 Glen Acres Road in Calhoun. This is local to us. Uh, we yeah, this is about 15 or 16 miles east of us over in Washtenaw yeah. Parish, and in, in West Washtenaw Parish more precisely. Uh, the number is 318-557-0390. They do have a website. Uh, Precious Memories Christmas Tree Farm was founded in eight, 1986. We are honored to serve as one of the few places in our area to bring families together to choose their family tree. We do the work for you. You just choose the tree you want. We cut it, net it, and tie it to your vehicle for you. We offer tree stands for purchase, free sleigh rides. There you go. Bring the whole family and take a spin around the farm on our sleigh pulled by an antique tractor. There's a gift shop, and our gift shop offers only homemade local items for sale. Everything is 100% unique, and you won't find them anywhere else. I think that Kerr and I drove out there and bought Christmas trees in the past uh, when we were living up there, like 
Um, you, know, you can walk around and pick up <clears> a tree that come and coat it and drag it to your car and put it on your roof. It's all kind of really cool, and it's super fresh. Like uh, the trees you get at the store, they've already been cut for days, weeks, or who, maybe even months. Uh, <laughs> but, you know, these are fresh cut, so they last a little longer. So, yeah. It is a Louisiana business, so do support Louisiana yeah. business. So if you're looking for a home, um, well, like a homegrown local to the area Christmas tree that's super fresh, and some other cool stuff, too. We enjoyed the sleigh ride and all the other stuff that they had going on there. Um, so now for this week's postcard from Louisiana, I listened to Jason Neville, uh, playing funk, I believe it was on uh, Bourbon Street. I can't remember which um, which which place he was at, but I do remember uh, him being on Bourbon Street.
So before we go to uh, um, Ed, uh, I wanted to talk a little bit. We wanted to talk a bit about some of our milepost in our um, 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 within an anthology podcast uh, from last year. Do you have anything on the top of your 
uh, list, Stephen, that you want to mention? Yeah, I mentioned uh, when we were recording the the mother and daughter who think they've solved the mystery of Jean Lafitte. You know, they they did the the uh, book of history about you know tracing him, uh, or at least the man they think to be Jean Lafitte, tracing him if you recall to North Carolina. And I thought <clears throat> I thought that that was a very good episode. Uh, you know, if if they are correct in their conclusions, uh, they have solved probably one of the great mysteries of American history. What was the final fate of John Lafitte? Yeah, isn't that amazing that you could go up to this uh, random, uh, uh, almost random uh, Masonic lodge? There's his sword. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Later, just, oh my goodness, what an amazing story. Yeah, I mean, who who knew that? This could be could have really belonged to Jean Lafitte, and yeah. and it's even you know the the whoever if it's a counterfeit whoever did the the sword the engraving the the etching or whatever uh, did a pretty good job because it, they actually abbreviated the sword uh, the name of the holder or the purported holder correctly as J N Lafitte, and that's the well, way you, I think the way you do it in French even as, as well and, as in English. The engraving itself is old, like um, yeah. For a really long time, so it seems to support. And there was that was just a confirming uh, physical evidence. There's a lot of uh, evidence and records and stuff. That there was a man there that uh, didn't call himself a feat, but it seemed to be kind of known, you know. And it's like uh, Willie also lived off of his own, you know, resources. He never, you know, yeah. had to call on any loans or anything like that. I mean, he seemed to have. In other words, he seemed to have a fortune. Well, where would that be from? You see that. That's a, in itself is a mystery, unless if you know something about the life of a feet. Yeah, and he had brought some of his uh, uh, booty up there with him, and also uh, um, it, it, it's interesting that the society around him, like the, the good burgers of the town, nobody narked him out. You know, they uh, they all kind of, as much as this was an open secret, they didn't reporting to the authorities in such a way that they have to act on it. So it's kind of cool. Yeah, did um, they call him the pirate or something like that? I think the locals actually referenced him as a pirate or the buccaneer yeah. or something. So right. They, they knew something uh, contemporaneous with the man's, you know, residence in North Carolina. And, and, of course, the wild thing is he lives long after the Civil War. He's an old, well, he would be an older person, you know, by, by the time that he dies, I think it's, you know, the, I think toward the tail end of Reconstruction, so it's around 1874, 1875, something like that. So, yeah, he would have been an old-timer, you know, probably in his, I'm guessing, 80s, maybe 90s even. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is, yeah. I mean, that, that part of the narrative is at least plausible. Uh, you know, my, here's my mother just dying, and she was almost 102 years old. So it, it is certainly a plausible explanation, for, again, for the final fate of Lafitte. Right, yeah. Well, uh, also I wanted to mention... Uh, Episodes 460 and 461 from March 10th and 17th. We talked to Emily Toth of Chopin. Um, Kate Chopin is probably Louisiana's, well, second best known woman writer, the first being uh, Anne Rice, right? Um, but um, also, Emily is probably the nation's foremost uh, uh, specialist on. Uh, Kate Chopin. So it was really nice to have her on and uh, get her insights into Kate Chopin's life and work. All right, so what do you have? You had an old connection to her, too, through LSU, didn't you? Mm-hmm. Unfortunately, 
uh, as I said before, I went to school to get away from Louisiana, so I never studied under her or studied Louisiana literature. I could sure use those classes today. Uh, <laughs> we've had to teach ourselves. Well, and you know, you have to be kind of an autodidact to do anything like what we do, or any, really well, most I mean, of those parts, because you have to master an enormous amount of information, you know. Yeah. Almost every scholar, you know, they, they do something in their dissertation and it drifts a little bit, you know. The, the thing we really learned were research skills and how to synthesize information and uh, that way you can take up new topics as you need to and you have those skills. Well, what's your next um, uh, favorite you want to mention? Well, we had talked about, let's do this. I mean, uh, you mentioned the, the, the new book of Bob Mann on Huey Long. Oh, right, yeah. And, and, of course, she's got a follow-up book as well coming out. It's just been released, by the way, for you, uh, you know, people that cannot get enough of, of the kingfish. Well, there's another book out. It's just been released, what, in the past maybe month or two? I mean, it's really, really, really uh, recent release. And uh, yeah, I feel because Lamar White, our favorite guest, is uh, uh, working on a uh, – he, he wrote several major articles, which are free on the bike, free for about – uh, the death of Long and all the evidence he sifted through, but he's working on a book for him for that, which we'll hope he uh, gets out someday and can come plug it on our show. Yeah, I mean, and, and you know, Long is kind of like, a, he's one of those characters where every time we think we know more about him, we really don't know all about him. You know, he always reveals some kind of new information or, or you know, scholars always, you know, I think coming along with a new insight about the 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 life of Long, the the uh, tenure of Long as governor, the tenure of Long as senator, et cetera. So I think he's he's one of those characters. I don't want to use the word that, that starts with an E and ends with, a, with an N. <laughs> I think you know what I mean. Uh, and it references a certain color. But definitely Long is always someone I think that, you know, needs more study. So I'm glad right. that we're able to bring Bob on the show to talk about Huey Long. Okay. Um, well, my next uh, uh, nominee uh, for uh, one of my – well, all of these are great podcasts, but uh, uh, podcast number 458, uh, we talked to Matt Haynes about his book, The Big Book of King Cake. And most of our scholars, I, I have a lot of respect for the work they're doing, don't feel any kind of pain at all about uh, not writing that uh, book, but because I couldn't see myself doing that research. But, dude, I had been researching The Big Book of King Cake for years, and it never occurred to me to write it. Aiding <laughs> uh, the research, maybe. <laughs> I have been, yes, I have been, I've been carefully working my way through the different um, king cakes of New Orleans. It just never occurred to me that it might be something I would um, want to uh, write about. And this is a great book. Uh, made a big splash in uh, the uh, you know areas of the state that uh, follow Mardi Gras a lot and have a lot of king cakes. And he, he did. He went around mostly New Orleans, but outlying areas too, and just bought and ate king cakes from all the different spots and talked to the owners. Sounds like it was just a ton of fun to make that book, you know? Yeah, absolutely. Well, he's, you know, he's doing some uh, talks right now. I saw on social media maybe maybe earlier this week. I mean, it's been just a few days ago. It was either earlier this week or maybe last week where he was talking about his book, you know, about the big book of king cake. So he's still getting a lot of buzz. I mean, it's a, it's a topic that does remain, you know, perennially popular uh, outside of Louisiana even as, as his, you know, 
as, as his schedule does, you know, proved. I mean, he was going, I think, what, on the CBS News or something to discuss his book. So Yeah, he's been on a lot of media with it. So uh, what's your next uh, personal favorite from the last year? I'm looking at our two-parter uh, with Jari uh, Honore. Oh, yeah. We talked about our genealogist uh, friend in New Orleans. Um, 462 and 463 yes. from March 25th and 31st. And he, he is doing a really valuable service for people in general, but particularly for the African-American uh, community and, and more specifically for the person who's trying to do genealogical research because that can get to be a really thorny uh, quest to discover one's ancestors, you know, thanks to the legacy of, of slavery and Jim Crow. Especially in the, uh, families where the ancestors passed, you know, moved away from Louisiana and passed as white. And mm-hmm. This big barrier that they can't get back behind it. And, uh, he helped them when they called, you know. And, uh, he said, not unfamiliar at all to him. <laughs> uh, He's call. like a detective in a sense. I mean, that's, yeah, you, know, you are a detective when you're a genealogist. Yeah, I mean, yeah. you are following clues or following a trail, if you will. And that's, that's exactly what what he's doing, I think. Um, so, yeah, I really enjoyed that um, to kind of follow up on him. And also, it's not a, you know, it's kind of a sequel to, to, to his story and also his work. But just our recent, very recent interview with um, Danielle, um, oh, her last name escapes me. Was it? It wasn't Romano. Uh, it was, she was the one who discovered her ancestors and the, the being from the uh, oh, yeah. color from Natchitoches. So it's, it is, it is, it is Jari's kind of work, you know, going right down to a person who's actually doing the work and then filming the video. What's that? Yeah, 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 that's it. Yeah. And she's posting stuff, you know, pretty much every few days about her, her quest. I mean, again, yeah. a lot of her stuff, for, for, for listeners, her stuff is video kind of, you know, kind of of, entries. One of the best things about this podcast, for you and me personally, uh, is, has expanded our Rolodex so vastly. And, of course, nowadays nobody has an actual Rolodex, so we follow each other on Facebook and, you know, occasionally catch up. But, um, you know, it's just a, feels like there's a big team out there working on Louisiana topics, and we're part of it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, and, and, and we all uh, have that in common with each other. I mean, we, we all love and appreciate the, the history and people and culture of this state. Um, My next nomination is uh, Michael Martin, who was a co-editor of um, First Hand Louisiana, and uh, he and his other editor friends um, put together a book of primary resources from the history of Louisiana. And these are really important documents from uh, you know the first hundred years or so of uh, the colony when it, you know went to French head, Spanish head, back to France, back to, to the United States, and that's just some parts of it, other parts have other ways of uh, getting joined to the state. So here they are uh, having put these different documents together in one place as a kind of starting place for doing research. So, um, you know, certainly uh, people want to do, you know, use that as a place to start and then branch out, but it's a great place to start uh, researching topics from back then. Yeah, it, you know, this is another one of the beauties of our project. I like to think at least that we have episodes and also texts that appeal to, you know, scholars and civilians, so to speak, alike. 
you know, we've got texts that, for example, that you just mentioned, where the scholar can go in and, and use that kind of as a launch pad for their for their own research. But by the same token, you know, ordinary people can go read with great profit. I think can go read the novels on the, on the website, or they can go read the, the, the collections of poetry, or whatever you know, whatever they might find. And the the the, uh, the collection is broad enough. The holdings, as we would say in, in library information systems, the holdings are broad enough, such as such as that they will appeal to a lot of different kinds of readers. You know, and we, we well, I wouldn't expect somebody, for example, that's into old New Orleans, I wouldn't necessarily expect them to, you know, want to read stuff about, you know, West Louisiana or Central Louisiana. I mean, they might. I just would think they would be more, you know, interested in reading stuff about old New Orleans and maybe the Battle of New Orleans or whatever. People that are into Civil War type stuff, you know, might might or might not want to read something about, you know, from a, for example, from our cooking blog or whatever. But again, the holdings are, are broad enough and deep enough to that there's really something for everybody, I think. Right. And, you know, you know, kind of when you make a book like uh, First Hand Louisiana, it's like Sophie's Choice. You're having to decide which of your kids, you know, throw out of the anthology, and um, maybe we can come back and get you in the second anthology. You know, because there's so much stuff that you and I have the luxury of. We want it, you know, the whole thing in there. Yeah. yeah. I mean, there's no no um, artificial limit to how much material information we can put on a website where you, you know, there is a big limit on a, a, a page, you know, a book because there are only so many words you can fit in there. Um, so what's your next? Uh, uh, yeah, I'm, look, I'm looking at our list here, and we've got to highlight our, our friend and local writer, uh, Wesley Harris. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, who is extremely prolific, very much an unsung hero of North Louisiana history. Uh, so this is episodes 464, 465. And we talked with him. Let's go back and read the – this is kind of a thumbnail, but read the whole castle thing about Wesley's collection. His books include Rustin, Me, The Fear and a Favor, Fish Out of Water, Burglary for the Patrol Officer, The Roundup, The Military and the Marshals, uh, and uh, The Military, The Marshals, and Political Shenanigans in Claiborne and Lincoln Parishes, 1874, William R. Meadows, Slave, Soldier, and Symbol. I mean, this is a pretty amazing – uh, collection of works that a local historian has produced over a period of you know a number of years. And Wesley got to be a historian through an unusual route. Um, he, very smart, and out of high school, maybe after college, I can't remember. At some point, he became a police officer, and you know mm-hmm. went to study at the FBI and uh, how to be a better like detective, and did that for a long time. And you know, the, the detective and the historian are really. You know, a lot of overlap, yeah. yeah, yeah. A lot of overlap. Um, and so, uh, like, uh, Neither Fear Nor Favor, that's the autobiography of uh, Sizemore, who was a U.S. Marshal and uh, the Rustin Chief of Police, who was bushwhacked and uh, <laughs> gunned down in his prime. Just a fascinating story. I didn't, <clears throat> I never heard anything about that story before Wesley uh, got to digging in through the uh, local archives and found this stuff. Had you heard of him? I had. Here's the thing about that. It's weird. I had not heard the story, but I had seen the man's picture. I believe he's the one that I had gone up to see our friend Monty Russell at some point late at night in the, the police department. And it was either there or seeing my uncle when he was a sheriff's deputy. He was a radio dispatcher. But, but I think it was seeing Monty 
and we were talking, and I happened to look out on a hallway, and there was a gallery of all the chiefs of police of Ruston. And I happened to, Monty had to step out for a little while or something. Anyhow, he came back. And so we were just standing there talking, and I saw that gallery while he was out, and I noticed, you know, the names and, and, and again, the, the photographs of all these chiefs of police, and I think Sizemore was one. And I want to say it had a, a, a caption below his picture that said, killed in the line of duty or something like that. And I didn't bother to ask Monty, you know his story. Monty, of course, is Wes's brother-in-law. And I should have asked him, didn't, and Monty, Monty may have known the story. But, yeah, I mean, it was, as I recall, it was right there. I just didn't bother to follow up on, you know, my curiosity. Right, right. Well, um, I wanted to mention next uh, my chat with the YDSA of Louisiana Tech, Young Democratic Socialists of America. Uh, Tech has become, or it has some students, still, a, you know, engineering school and, I have a lot of uh, conservative kids, but uh, we have a lot more progressive ones now, and openly progressive, whereas if there had been people like that 20 years ago, they would have been afraid to form a group, you know? They were creeping towards that kind of thing. Uh, but, yeah, I'm like you. It, it was not – people were keeping their mouths shut, frankly. You know, they were being right. really, I think <laughs> – bullied into being quiet, but also just the, the culture was such that they didn't feel that they could really, you know, come out and support, you know, various, you know, initiatives that the DSA supports, like universal health care and universal public education and, you know, that, that, those kinds of initiatives. Fair minimum wage. Uh, you know, there's so many things that our country is no longer doing for our kids. How about free college? How about yeah, you know, yeah. all student debt? Uh, you know, um, Biden was kind of shocked at how uh, positively the students responded to his uh, giving away of $10,000 of debt. Well, um, you know, and kids were coming out to vote in this recent election way more than they usually do. Uh, so, you know, the, the basic facts of politics, which Republicans never, ever, ever forget, is that... Um, you do things for the people who put you in power. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, I'm asking you to uh, vote for me. Uh, why? Well, what's in it for me? Oh, well, $10,000 off your student debt. How about that? Ah, uh, yeah. Which the, is, the which is a harp on. I mean, that, that builds the common good. You know, yeah. I mean, it's not putting good. down tax breaks for billionaires and, and for the corporations, that does not build the common good. Yeah, it was good for Biden's poll numbers and the Democrats' poll numbers, but all those kids who've been held back for decades, they they graduate and they carry this weight like an albatross on their neck for the rest of their lives with no way to get rid of it. Um, And all of a sudden, 10,000 of it dropped off, and they rewarded the Democrats. But I believe they will work really, really hard, Stephen, to never, ever, ever learn the lesson. (laughs) Yeah, it's ridiculous. I mean, the the elites in this country who essentially control both parties, one more than the other, but they they control both parties. And the elites know how to fire up their base. They also know how to fire up their political henchmen and henchwomen. That's what they do. Like I think the the, uh, Republican elites, they they know what their people want. They promise to give it to them, and then they do it. Um, The problem with Democrats is... uh, you know, they promise stuff and then don't follow through. The problem with Republicans is they promise stuff and they do follow through. <laughs> they well, do and, it, and it's, not, it's, not, 
it's not what you and I've talked about either. It's not it's not only not conducive to building a common good, but it's not rooted in civic virtue either. No, right. We need to... It's rooted in, in revenge and grievance politics. Right. Unfortunately. So So what's your next selection? Uh we've got to bring this on and I, this is a controversial topic, but this is what, you know, a lot of people voted about in the most recent election. So it bears mentioning is our episode with Stacey Simmons. Uh, where she wrote the, the post enough. Um, this was our friend from New Orleans who I think works in California now and yeah. wrote about, uh, you know, a woman's right to choose. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, it's a powerful, powerful essay. Uh, I believe she let us cross-post that on our uh, um, anthology, the uh, the text, well, you know, the, the, uh, the, the site where we put up the uh, documents as opposed to where we have the... Um, Program, so I think she let us put that on our website. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Do you remember? It's, yeah, I'm looking at it. It, it is. Uh, it is. Oh, sorry, it's on our website. Yeah, you got a link to it, uh, and I pulled it up. I'm trying to see where it's posted to. So this will come up. It's going. It'll take a while because my phone's kind of running down on juice. Yeah, but yeah, she had, she had posted website. this thing publicly, and then you. We're able to, you know, track her down and, 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 you know, get her to, you know, come on the show as a guest. Yeah, and also to let us cross-publicize it. So she has made it, it was a, a Facebook post, which is, you know, those things are <clears throat> today and then really hard to find. And it's funny, every so often I'll have somebody like one of our posts from five years ago, and I'm like, how did they even find it? <laughs> you know? Um Probably but, we did a Facebook search. I mean, you can do search. Right. You just do a keyboard search. That's likely what they did, I'm guessing. But once it's on our website, then it remains fixed in place. And, you know, it's like um, Facebook is kind of like ancient cities. You know, they would build a city and their fire would destroy it and they'd just knock everything down, pile up some dirt and pile up some more stuff, you know, build some more stuff. Like like ancient Troy, right? <laughs> yeah, yes, exactly. It adds layers layers to Facebook and everything. There's a Schliemann out there somewhere, you know, about about you know five hundred, six hundred years from now. So yeah, this is the kind of uh, thing that the anthology can excel at, which is something new and cutting edge, and getting it into the anthology while it's still in the news, as opposed to a well, movie. well, it is. Yes, it is white hot, so to speak. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, yeah, it was a good good conversation, good post. We appreciate her uh, coming back for that. Uh, just uh, uh, one of our favorites, both you and me, is uh, Sybil Gage, who... Uh, yes. Yes, she's a jazz singer. You know. And is an outstanding jazz singer. Yeah, right? yeah. She's now living in Florida, so... Um, um, She's been there a while, but she keeps the New Orleans flame alive over there. Uh, her, you know, she has a pretty active career, I believe. Um, so, what's your next? Uh, uh... Uh, right after that is uh, our friend, the, the, one of these really amazing uh, pieces of serendipity. These kind of go back to back, but you recall we spoke with Ted Shermer about his time at LSU. Yeah, and, and we want to. If you want to develop that one, you can. But but as as you recall, we were toward the tail end of the interview when he mentioned uh, speaking with his uh, mother-in-law, Joyce Carrington, uh, Corrington, excuse me. And I said, wait, as in Joyce and 
John William Corrington. Yes, that was his father-in-law, and I almost had a coronary right on air because right. we had been seeking them been for ages. Her for years, she'd been trying to get information. Yeah, on yeah. I mean, an hour, our former colleague now deceased, and I think you may be friends with his son online, and I think Ted is too. But um, uh, Lloyd Halliburton's son, I guess his name is also Lloyd. And Lloyd knew John William Corrington, Bill Corrington, knew him from back in Shreveport when they were kids growing up. And I think they both went to what was then called Jesuit, and it's now called Loyola Prep, the, the Catholic uh, prep store high school in Shreveport, really, really good uh, institution. And so, lo and behold, we we kind of backed into or sleepwalked into being able to speak with Joyce, which was quite nice. Uh, that's, um, that's a skill in a knowledge area that you brought to um, all of our anthology, uh, you know, the, the written and the, uh, the talking is to that, um, uh, the, the place of theater in uh, the history of Louisiana. And uh, mm-hmm. you've been interested in, before we even started this project, you've been able to bring that <clears throat> into the project. Yeah, and in her case, film, because she and, and uh, Bill Corrington, of course, were screenwriters. Well, in film and TV, I mean, they were both... Mm-hmm. Yeah. Turn- as uh, soap opera stuff, you yes, know, they, exactly. They worked at all the levels of, uh, and they were very successful, particularly in those yep. soap operas. I mean, they had a really long run uh, yep. in terms of turning out some, you know, pretty high quality writing. You, yep. That's not you know, for for listeners that don't follow soap operas or don't follow, you know, these are series characters. I have a friend that that was writing before they lost the license. He was writing the new Doc Savage novels up in, in Massachusetts and near Boston. And he will tell you, doing a series character is very rewarding, but it is difficult because you have to be able to take that character, and if a series is going to be Bible, you have to let that character grow and go in directions maybe that you would not have predicted. You see? Right. And they were able to do that with their, particularly, as I said, with that soap opera writing, uh, which was very successful. And they also pioneered, I think, didn't they create the real world or they wrote parts of it or something? They had, they had a hand in that, too. Yeah, they didn't. Invent the uh, what did they call those things? Reality TV, yeah. Reality TV, but they came in really early and fixed it. Like, um, um, it was the inverse of what she usually does. They do a, a script and then people act. And uh, you know, uh, in this one, you've got the people talking, and then you have to make it into a script. You know, the stuff that's already there, uh, and that's a you know, it's a whole different way of doing things, and it kind of spread to all the other shows when she had figured it out. That is like, and I'm not a scholar of this like some people are, but the, the whole idea of writing comics, scripting comics, supposedly Stan Lee and Jack Kirby did that kind of thing, and also Steve Ditko, one of the other artists. They developed what they call the Marvel Method, where they would draw the, the things, the, the, the various adventures of Spider-Man and the Avengers and, you know, Captain America, et cetera, et cetera, Iron Man. And then they would act after the fact, I think, is the way they did this. It's a complete, you know, count, completely counterintuitive kind of way of doing something, at least on inspection. But they would draw it, and then they would script it from the art. Right. Instead of writing a script out and then drawing it from, the, you know, drawing the, what the, you got. the art. Now, yeah, I think what they, they might have had, like, an idea and let the artist illustrate it as they would. But it, it turned out to be a lot quicker but also more efficient in terms of, you know, getting a story ready each, because this is grueling work to be able to do this once a month, but oh. for a lot of different books, or in Joyce and, and Bill Corrington's case, 
writing a lot of scripts or doing, you know, doing whatever they do uh, weekly, if you can imagine. Yeah, probably with a stable of writers too. But still, oh, yeah. again, it's very, very challenging and, and frankly, uh, nerve-wracking work to do this and do it with any kind of, you know, quality. Well, and she mentioned that part of being good at the job of writing is that they actually got promoted out of actually writing. Like she and her husband got to more directing the writers what to write, but they had to kind of, you know, kind of make out the plot lines and all that kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas, uh, you know, once you have the general, this is what's going to happen, you know, 15 minutes, 30 minutes, 45, and, and you have people come in and write it up. But they were, like, having to direct that uh, one more step removed. Um, my next uh, uh, person, which, you know, if you haven't heard this episode um, that we're talking about, it would be good, but good to go back and listen to 46. Natalie Dessin, who is a French scholar studying colonial Louisiana, <laughs> but from the perspective of the French and from uh, the Caribbean, uh, as opposed to just, um, you know, the, the way we tended to come at it when I was coming along was from kind of the American stance, but, uh, you know, she sees it as part of a, a different milieu at one point, which it was, you know, it eventually got brought into the United States, but it wasn't always. So what's your next? Uh, yeah, de- I mean, it definitely was an alien world. You know, as, as we were talking today with Grace King, I mean, about uh, Grace King with Wendy uh, Council, it was a different world that those earliest Americans, you know, those earliest English speakers after the U.S. became, or the colonies became a country, and say from 1803, 1804 forward, they were walking into a new world that was, you know, it was European and yet I met yet not European because it was also African and it was also native. And they were not, you know, coming out of Protestant New England and even Protestant slash Anglican, you know, middle colonies. They weren't accustomed to something like that, you know, when they come to New Orleans. So it, it was the embodiment of a lot of their probably, I would say their fears, wouldn't you? I mean, in a lot of respects. Yeah, fears and fantasies, you know. The, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like um, a double-edged sword, yeah. And New Orleans becomes probably the first place in in uh, what's now the United States, that um, people went there to have exotic sex. You know, that was just sexual tourism. Was, and if you remember, uh, Duke of Saxe, Weimar, uh, uh, Bernard, Bernard, uh, you know, he was quite pleased to meet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, part of the charm of the city. And, uh, you know, it's part of its uh, allure, but it also makes it exotic and therefore easy to dismiss. So, yeah, you know, like you say, a double-edged sword. So, um, was that one yours? Or is it my no, friend? that was yours, yeah, kind of following oh, up on, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And well, I have my next uh, kind of favorite. We brought it back on, we had several episodes this year that, as, as the one tonight, well, we brought back on old friends that haven't been back, on, you know, back on the show in quite a while. And so we brought on Katie Morla Shannon uh, oh, yeah. to do her two-parter about uh, Antoine of Oak Alley, which yeah. has gotten quite a lot of buzz. And I think maybe yeah. has it not won some awards maybe this year for maybe historians or something? But I mean, it was a real really filled in some gaps about not just African American Louisiana history, but also horticultural history because. Yeah. I mean, Juan was a real pioneer, a real trailblazer. Well, and what's really unusual is that we actually know who 
Antoine was. Because like Elon Musk, rich people buy, um, you know, um, or, 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 and I think it was after the Civil War. Was he a slave or was this later? Uh, he may have been an enslaved person. Let's he look not, he's just a slave. And so uh, you buy the uh, slave. Yeah, and, Antoine, the enslaved gardener of Oak Alley. So, yeah. It, you take it, take uh, take credit for their work, which is you know um, Elon Musk buys a, a car company and uh, suddenly he's the inventor of the electric car. No, 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 no. He had money and he paid somebody and he put. Mm-hmm. Trump's never built anything in his life. That's corporate capitalism. Slaps the name on there and uh, everybody gets some credit. So uh, the fact that he got credit, like. In our collective memory, uh, it was Etienne Bory who uh, perfected the granulation of sugar in uh, the United States. But I bet your dollar to a donut <laughs> it was somebody uh, that you know he owned, or because that was back, he was very early. This is oh yeah, oh yeah. So it was probably them who invented it. And Etienne took the, the glory. So yeah, yeah, yeah. So Antoine gets the credit for. Well, again, uh, it's, it, it's corporate it's capital. Called, you know, corporate capitalism. You know, the uh, the kind of uh, pecan trees that can be cultivated uh, easily by others. You know, once you figure something out, it's easier for others to do it. But he's the one that figured it out. Nobody had been able to do that. Uh, pecans were just wild trees, and you know, out in the woods, you had to go and find them, and that makes them very rare. And, you know, in New Orleans and the rest of Louisiana, we love pecans. So. <laughs> yeah, and then, well, it enables not only their mass their mass cultivation, but also then it enables a a large or it builds a, a large market. You know, you've already got kind of a kind of a built in market in Louisiana, and probably Mississippi, and, and probably East Texas too, where you would grow lots and lots of pecans. Again, there's no way to cultivate them on a grand scale until Antoine comes along. So uh, my next book um, or uh, podcast is uh, where we talked to Tyson Pugh on uh, episode 483 about his article on the Confederacy of Dunces um, entitled Systemic Racism, Queer White Privilege, and the Carnivalesque Humor of John Kennedy Tools, a Confederacy of Dunces. And, you know, part of our life experience is we kind of bring it to um, our academic studies, and you know, I've, I've read the book. I've you know been familiar with the ideas of it for a long time. Never, <clears throat> ever occurred to me. Um, of course, he's gay, and the guy he's writing about is gay. Um, you know, they're, they're both young single men uh, who uh, don't ever seem to have any dates with women and live with their moms. You know, the guy who do the right. Isn't this a classic case of reader response criticism? I mean, you're you're yeah. more up on literary theory than I am, but it's. Stanley Fish, from what I can see, you know, um, the reader, and I kind of, I kind of like this way of looking at a text, that the reader brings his or her own meaning to the text whenever they encounter what the what the writer has, you know, put on the page or the screen. Well, and so you and the writer, then, or kind of the co-authors, or at least, you know, you, you with them, you, you know, you all kind of bring some sort of understanding to the world of that text. Yeah, the, the little hints that they drop in um, that folks like. Tyson um, uh, Pugh can pick up on because he's familiar with the code. Mm-hmm. I just wasn't, you know, it, when I read it, it just went right past me. But oh yeah, of course. Uh, what was I thinking? <laughs> How did I? Well, you know, this this mirrors something that's a real bugaboo with you and me both is the 
portrayal of kind of a uniform or what do they call it, univocal, but, you know, a one-voiced New Orleans or a one-voiced Louisiana, when we know that that is, or that is quite not true. Right. Uh, with the different, not just the different cultures, but the different dialects, the different uh, religious systems across the state, Louisiana is a really complex place. Yeah. And it's, I mean, it's such an, an irritant for us. You know, somebody was talking about some film that they had seen the other day on another site I won't go into, but another Facebook group that I'm a member of, and it's a popular culture kind of thing, popular fiction kind of thing, and they were raving about the movie. And I said, well, I'm not going to, and I didn't even post this. But what, I movie? thought about it. Yeah, I don't even remember what the movie was, but I oh. remember they were kind of raving about how great it was. And I wanted to put, well, if it's not produced by a Louisiana or by people that understand the local culture, the local dialect, it's not worth my time. And right. really, because, it, again, it's not going to be an accurate portrayal. It's a, it is a, a, a screenwriter and a producer and a director's image of what Louisiana is, but it's not necessarily the real thing. And it's not even a good representation of the real thing, you know, because that's, that, that's kind of the best we can hope for, I think, and it was far from that. Right. And so I thought, well, I'm just not going to, you know, watch whatever that – I think it was some movie, and I thought, I'm just not going to waste time with it. So uh, is it your – who are we talking about? Are we still talking about – Yeah, Tyson? you had done Tyson Hughes. So okay, turn. My call. So let's see. Yeah, let's follow up on that. We mentioned Joyce uh, Corey's, and so definitely Ted Shermer. Uh, and his story, uh, the defiance about his time at LSU, really yeah. resonated with me because I was a little kid. My cousin Greg was going to school with Ted. Yeah, he used uh, to uh, debate with people like uh, uh, oh, David Duke. I mean, David Duke, right? Yeah. So yeah, yeah. My cousin wanted to punch him out while he he was when he was about a freshman or sophomore. Ted was probably about a senior, so he was mm-hmm. a little further along than my cousin. But yeah, I remember that Greg, uh, my cousin, could not stand Duke. And this didn't mean anything to me because I was a nine-year-old child. You know, I didn't know who David Duke was, you know, from Adam. Uh, but, yeah, it did, it did resonate with me because, again, he was down there with my cousin. Uh, he was, you know, fighting the, 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 the establishment, so to speak, fighting the man. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Very interesting. A very uh, powerful force in LSU politics, which makes him a powerful force in Louisiana politics, uh, had he, you know, uh, the two are like very closely related. Uh, I've just uh, uh, in, really enjoyed doing the uh, interview with my old buddy Terry Ellis, episodes 491 and 492. He's written a book. Uh, he lives in Baton Rouge and has many years. Wrote a book on Reasonably Happy, which is about the serenity prayer. We can all use a little more serenity, right? <laughs> <laughs> so what's your next one? Uh, I have to bring this on, another North Louisiana, since we've mentioned Wesley, uh, Angie Maxwell, who had a book, The Long Southern Strategy. Yes, about, that was a great interview. Yeah, yeah about the, with, as, you, as you wrote uh, here in the notes, with the emphasis on the Southern Baptist Convention of Louisiana. And not uh, just Northern Louisiana, she's from Huey Longville. Yes, though. she's from Winfield, you see. So, And classically, like you get in that area, you get people who, uh, may be Creole, or they may be like her family, where you have the the mix of North and South Louisiana. That's where that meets. That's the edge of North yeah, Louisiana, yeah, yeah. as well as oh. the edge of what they call the crossroads, where you get you know the French, you know the Afro-French, Franco-African type culture meeting North Louisiana Anglo type culture. Right, right, right. So very uh, interesting uh, interview that one was, and um, 
And you, we need to bring her back on, I think, at some point mm-hmm. to kind of follow up, not only with what she did, but also to talk about, you know, her next book. I mean, she, I think her area actually is Southern Studies or American Studies or something, so it, it kind of lines up a, a lot of what we do. And if you look at, in fact, some of this, we didn't even get to bring this up with the interview with her, but if you look up until just the last three or four years, if you looked at the, the Louisiana Baptist Convention website, it very much soft-pedaled the founding of the convention uh, you know, when it was when it was constituted down at Mount Lebanon and, and Bienville Parish. They didn't even really go into the reason it was constituted, but it was all about slavery. And you say that to a lot of those people. I mean, I know I said this to a guy on another social media site, and he promptly blocked me. Well, I'm sorry that you don't like history, but that, that is a fact, you know. I said it was born in slavery. It was born over the idea of race and racism. It's a fundamental contradiction at the heart of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, which I, I like to put it this way. At some point in every Southern <laughs> Baptist life, we a fork in the road. You have to decide if you're going to keep on being Southern or if you're going to keep on being Baptist. You know, the, the convention was, uh, you know, Baptist denomination uh, in general was formed basis of, on the basis of uh, individual um, rights to make choices for themselves, uh, the individual's ability to make choices <clears throat> for themselves, both men and women, all races, all creeds, all climes, you know, all of this. Then, of course, the Southern Southern Baptist Convention is founded on the principle of, oh, yeah, we love that freedom, but we also kind of like slavery. Yeah, uh, well, basically, the wealthy white man being able to make choices for everybody, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It cannot square the You know, it's a fundamental contradiction. Occasionally, somebody will listen to what Baptists are saying, like you and me did. Oh, wait, (laughs) that doesn't really match up with what I'm seeing around me. There is a there's a collection of letters that I just found this week. This is kind of a teaser for the listeners, and I haven't even told you about it because since since Angie did this book and we're doing kind of a reminiscence of this past year, this is kind of appropriate. So I want to try to get this guy landed for the show. But there's a family from North Louisiana who are unionists now, and their last name was Pearson, and they had a. This is where the whole idea of secession and unionism and abolition are very thorny, and they're, all, they're separate issues, particularly abolition and, and unionism. You know, you could be a unionist but still have slaves and not even necessarily be uh, anti-racist, certainly not anti-racist, but you would be pro-union. Right. Uh, conversely, you could be, yeah, you could be, you could be an abolitionist, uh, you know. And, and this, like, yeah, this family was, was like this. The, the, there were eight kids, apparently, and the family were very staunch pro-unionists. Uh, but they wound up, uh, four of the eight children who were male, who were sons, ended up going to fight for the Confederacy, I think being kind of pushed into it. But the family was very much pro-union. And they were right over here in Bienville Parish, i.e. Arcadia area. And it like, um, was before Lincoln Parish was, you know, was carved out a part of Bienville and part of, I think, part General, of Jackson. General Sherman, um, you know, he loved the South. Uh, he didn't mind slavery, but... He was a unionist, and so he spent the year before the Civil War started, both the first president of LSU and also writing these letters as a public, you know, figure to all these uh, friends. He's saying, you're, you're doing something crazy. Stop it. So, oh, you know, well, he wrote, a, or wrote or he either wrote a letter or had a conversation. Maybe it's recorded. I mean, it, it is recorded somehow, but there was a man by the name of David Allen Boyd, I think, 
but he becomes the first president of LSU after the Civil War. Hmm. And he was then one of one of Tecumseh Sherman's faculty at LSU, or the Louisiana Military Seminary, whatever it was called, and which was clearly training. I mean, it, what it winds up doing, as you and I know, it winds up training a lot of the officer class that comes yep. out of Louisiana. Right. But he told Boyd, the, as I said later, to become the first post-war president of LSU, he tells him what you're what you're pursuing is foolish. He tells him that point blank. It's foolish. It's, I think he said it was foolhardy. Yeah, um, yeah. Tell him all that. <laughs> but he he ended up also. I think I think Boyd. Well, I think Boyd winds up being captured. There there is a. I think he is a was a part ranger, maybe down at Fort Bulow. But anyway, he wrote a big article about this a, a number of you know probably five six seven years ago. I'd like to see if I can't track the guy down. But it, it deals in part with Boyd because if he's the one I'm thinking about, he winds up being captured and he escapes. Oh, and, okay. yeah, and I don't know if he wound up doing a if he was out released on a prisoner exchange or what. He eventually comes back to Louisiana. He becomes president of what becomes LSU, and he has some conflict with faculty, so he leaves for a time. Went over to Auburn, became president over there for a year or two, and eventually landed back at LSU. I think he finished his career at LSU. I mean, you, you could look this up to confirm or deny what I'm saying. But, yeah, he, it would be interesting to get this guy on because it's kind of a sequel to the story of William Tecumseh Sherman. Right. Um, so, well, so, yeah, I, I mean, he, he, saw, he saw the foolhardiness, as did really – he more or less told him it would wreck the South. Well, it's, that's what it did. Right, yeah, totally. And, um, you know, if it worked it right, um, the French got reparations not to the slaves, the former slaves, but to the former slave owners. Yes. You know, there could have been that. It was offered. It was on the table. But, uh, you know, no, no, we, we want slavery and we want the expansion of slavery. So, okay, well, you know, now you lost your slaves. <laughs> um, yeah. Well, I guess we better not keep Ed waiting any longer. We'll move on into that part of the podcast. We sure appreciate you folks sticking with us through all of these uh, uh, talks. I know I find I've learned a lot from uh, talking to folks. And I hope our listeners have too. Yeah, it's like a it's like a class every week, <laughs> right? It is. It is now a master class because these are people at the top of their game in this you know exact area, right? Mm-hmm. Well, now let's go to uh, hear the first part of our uh, chat with Ed Branley about Millicent. Yeah. Yes, Charlotte is, uh, or uh, she's. I guess the the way to say it, she's kind of started her uh, career as a buggy ride driver. Yes, hmm. and uh, and of course, uh, you know that that the, the, we could talk about buggy ride buggy ride drivers, you know, forever because right. old guys. You know, we we used to actually refer to. You know, we used to, there used to be. Those guys, let's just say they weren't the most accurate historians in the world, right? <laughs> yeah, exactly, right? So we used to call it, uh, we used to say, oh, no, you are now uh, you are now an expert in buggy ride history. If you take two of them, you know, you, you, you learn things that never happened in New Orleans in a big way. Well, Charlotte is obviously, you know, she – she didn't want to, you know, didn't want to be that person, right? And she's actually got a, uh, uh, she's, she has earned a master's degree from Tulane. And wow. her, 
her master's thesis is on mules. Cool. So it's, we will it's not, you know, right, it's not just horses, mind you. She is an outright, I mean, like, if you got, if you had, if you ended up in court over, you needed background history on mules in New Orleans, Charlotte Jones was the one you would hire as your expert witness. <laughs> now, um, so I don't want to steal all of Charlotte's thunder, but and dirty is why you may be having trouble getting a hold of her is because she started uh, she started a PhD uh, track at Ooh. LSU. I thought so, that's the real yeah yeah it, yeah that like think, historical anthropology or something like that or exactly yes it's now a um, verified kind of area I think yeah and um, she well in between uh, in between finishing Tulane and uh, starting this program. She worked as the operations manager at the Kid Ori House, the 1811 oh. Museum. Have you guys had have you, have you had Johnny Mac on? Have you had John McCusker on yet? I don't think. No, we haven't. Oh, man. Some, some guy named Sam somebody or other. I don't know if he had something to do with them or not, but he's he is uh, from my old hometown of Baton Rouge, or at least he's, uh, 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 he's a jazz musician in Baton Rouge, and he's got, got something – I wish I could think of the guy's name, but anyway, uh, I think he may know something about that house too. But he's a, like, he, he is he and his band are they supposedly the only traditional jazz band in, in all of Baton Rouge, which is pretty remarkable. That's somehow, so, somehow that that's doesn't surprise a, me. Right? That's more of a blues city, anyway. I mean, that's they're, yeah, they're exactly. Famous for the blues, but they're they're a traditional he, jazz band. Yeah, it's kind of wild. But. Excellent. Okay, John MC with a, and then a K, John McCusker. Okay. okay. John, Johnny Mac was for years a photographer for the Picayune. Okay, so he's got stories like you wouldn't believe just because, you know, that job, right? That kind of thing. But more to the point is he wrote the definitive piece or biography of uh, Edward Kidd Ory. And it's called, the title of the book is Creole Trombone. It's got a picture of, of, of Dutch. It's got a picture of Kid Ori on, on the front. And um, I, I'll, just, I'll just throw out the one thing that it, if there's no other reason you buy the book is Johnny Mac tells the story of Kid Ori. Now, Kid Ori lived in the plot. He, he, he was – it's, it, it's, of course, it's, it's sharecropping at that right. point. Uh, but he lived Probably. with uh, – uh, I want to say he's like 1890. He's born, so he's like like 15, 16, 1905, 1906, somewhere along that line. I'd have to pull the book out to get the date straight. But anyway, the the the, the catch is he uh, McCusker tells the story of Ori coming in on the um, on the train to New Orleans from Laplace, picking up the. Uh, the, the Illinois Central Branch, uh, Wazoo, uh, the Wazoo Branch coming into New Orleans. And uh, he, uh, so he comes into the city, and then he, then he talks about riding the streetcar to Canal Street to go to Whirlines to buy his first decent trombone. And I, I, I swear, it's, a, <clears throat> it's just like, just, 
it's it's a talent, right? You know, the, the, to be able to, I, I want to write like that. <laughs> but, oh, yeah. uh, but the big thing is, uh, to tie that back to, to, to Charlotte, uh, John McCusker started, he's the founder of the Kid Ori House and the museum, which they've hooked up with, um, they hooked up with a local nonprofit. They, they had some issues with ownership and everything. I think they've worked all that out. They've managed to stay open in spite of those changes. And, uh, and Charlotte worked up there and lived on the, uh, lived at, you know, at, at the house and everything for a while. So I, honest to gosh, don't know where she, you know, especially, you know, you know how it is pursuing a graduate degree. Uh, but you, yeah, you guys, well, yeah, she needs to, she absolutely, well, both of them absolutely need to be part of the anthology. Yeah, totally. No, no, no two him. ways about it. Yeah, we're always looking for the next. <laughs> oh, yeah, she's, yeah, and she's younger, so, you know, it's like she's absolutely the next, you know. I in, feel in like my uncle, my uncle, my mom's old middle brother was a baseball, he was a minor league and eventually a major league baseball player all total like 14 years, but when he left the league, at least as a player, he became a scout. And this connects directly to New Orleans, but he was the guy that signed Rusty Cobb. Um, Rusty uh, Staub, excuse me. Rusty Staub, yeah. yeah. Yeah, my uncle signed him. He was his oh, that's awesome. Him, yeah. And so anyway, um, I, say, I say this to say that, and he was doing that, my uncle was doing that up until I was a little kid, until around 1964, five or six, before he finally retired completely and became a sheriff's deputy back here in North Louisiana. But, uh, I mean, <clears throat> Bruce and I are doing that. We have to, you know, not only host the show, but we're scouting people. And we've got some people, too, that kind of help us informally and, and kind of give us tips, like you're doing right now. But they say, well, you've got to bring so-and-so on. She's a good historian or so-and-so, uh, you know, he's a, uh, he's a really fine poet or whatever. And, and that's, how we, that's how we find a lot of people is just by word of mouth, you know, and people I, going I out and taking the bushes for us. So that's um, – um, yeah, that, that, that's absolutely it, right, because – yeah, I say I ain't getting any younger. I don't know about y'all, but uh. <laughs> <laughs> no. Um, so, we thank you so much for coming back, and uh, we brought you on to uh, talk about one of New Orleans' best kept secrets, and that is uh, the Meliton. And I guess the first question to ask you is, uh, how do you pronounce it? I say Meliton, with, with there's no R. Okay, right. But right. that's that's going to be Yat Gentilly Sicilian pickup because that's kind of how I was raised in that in that dialect. Okay? Right. Some people will say Merliton, but I say it like like Milly, like M I L L I T O N, Militon. You know where the, where you, you you roll out the I. I mean the yeah. R. If you remember I, that the uh-huh. word goes back to a, it's a French word, so generally you won't pronounce it like an Anglo mer, merleton. You know that. Uh, yeah, seems like you're you're more in line with uh, the way it would be pronounced uh, back in the day. I, I think so. Um, with that, and also like it's it's that you know, people will say you know people say it's the ninth word thing, and we, that's a linguistic thing to go back into, but it it, it comes from the Sicilian influence. Of, in flux in the, the you know 1880s and so and they uh, the, the Sicilians have much to answer for when it comes to New Orleans English let's just put it that way I think uh, it's for a, better or for worse the yad accent is great so anything that oh, helps it's it's wonderful yeah now <laughs> what's what's fun is go uh go up to Baltimore 
go to uh, go to an Orioles game or a Ravens game and see if you can sit anywhere near locals, and you will start swearing you're down in the nightclub. I keep saying that. Yeah, it's not like – I mean, it's sort of like New York, but it's more like Baltimore. I mean, I know I had a classmate or two in Boston that were from that area, and I would hear it, and I think, geez, it sounds kind of like New Orleans, you know? Yes. It's a That's, kiss and cousin to it. It's not like a sibling, but it is a kiss and cousin. It's absolutely a kiss and cousin. Yeah, and there's a lot of that going. Yeah, you know uh, John McDonough, as in McDonough number this and McDonough number that, and the, the statue in Lafayette, in, in, in Lafayette Square. McDonough was 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 from Baltimore. Or was, huh. He was a Marylander, and he, you know, when he when he died, he divided his fortune. The estate was divided between public schools in New Orleans and public schools in Baltimore to continue the education of people and everything else. That, that, that ain't no coincidence. Let's just put it right. that way. That, he's not the only one that had that kind of, of connection. But, but yeah, it's, I say militant, and I, I kind of leave the R out. And uh, I've never been called on it, so I think that's, that's, that's other people as well. well to think about it. 15 miles from where Stephen and I are, this little town called Arcadia. You really you know, push that R. But down south, right. the same word comes down as Arcadia, and eventually Cadia, and eventually Cajun. Right. And that, so, yeah. That's, I always, I'm, I'm very good about pronouncing the R, because Arcadia is my publisher. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, it's, uh, that's a different ball game, but no, you're you're, you're absolutely right. I, I, you know, I've noticed that in doing my, you know, you know, my day gig is teaching, doing all this, uh, you know, really highfalutin computer training, and uh, I've 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 noticed that I tend to run our as an O U R and R A R E way too together lately. So I've been more conscious of our and R, you know, that right. kind of like pirate. Well, and um, there is on the YouTube a whole podcast that is just devoted to how do you pronounce Meliton, and uh, they bring in people from around New Orleans to say it their way. So I think it's great. There's now a uh, Meliton pronunciation web um, uh, podcast. I think pretty cool. That's fantastic. Yeah. Did anybody reply? If you ask someone how they pronounce Meliton, did anybody reply Shiloh? I haven't heard one yet, but I haven't heard... All of them. I just okay. I can see somebody being flippant and having more of the uh, of the Spanish Creole type background. Yeah. Uh, you know, try replying back to Spanish name. You know that kind of thing. I I can see somebody doing that because you know. If you're going to get this um, this uh, vegetable at all outside of New Orleans and maybe some of the rest of South Louisiana, it's going to be at a you know. Hispanic or Mexican or you know Latin grocery. Absolutely, it's a right because it's a it's a you know it's it's a it's a central basically you know it's a Central American gourd. Yeah, you know, so the Wikipedia thing on it. It says it's a gourd, and in a, in the so-called New World, it was first cultivated in southern Mexico and Honduras. Uh, the, there you go. I was going to say Guatemala, but yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, oh yeah, there's a variety available in Guatemala too. So yeah, you know, right. kind, of, kind of the southern edge of North America, in other words, Mexico, but down into Central America. Yeah, and, and, right. And, um, but it, but it comes from the old world, according to this. And I'm, 
I guess it's related to the squash and, and uh, what else would be in that family. I guess it's um, yeah, it's yeah, it's the squash, zucchini. Well, zucchini is a squash, right? More like yeah. a, a, in this case, it's meatier, more like a spaghetti squash. You know, the the, the more round, you know, it's like the, the more round type, or hell, a pumpkin too, for that matter. You know, different flavoring, but the same uh, botany, as they say, right? You know, we're going to break in here. And I finished cooking those melaton next week. Um, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> this is um. Sorry, expansion for your melaton. <laughs> yeah, we're doing it this time of the year because it's uh, they make so many that you have to have a big crowd to eat them. And so Thanksgiving and Christmas become the major times for the most melatons get eaten. Um, you know, you. There was for sale for three, four dollars uh, a couple of weeks ago. Probably about the same now. And, um, you can kill uh, feed two people with one melaton. Uh, let's see, you buy ten uh, for three thirty, um, and you can feed um, twenty people. <laughs> so it's really economical as well as delicious. Uh, but you, you see, well, you see why Ed said it was peasant food. I mean, these are people like my aunt's family that were very working class, probably farming people. Uh, they would have big families, uh, yeah. just like my grandparents did up here north of the hill country. A lot of big families, and you have to be able to feed lots and lots of, not just yeah. children, but some extended family usually at a meal. Right. Well, for the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Brent McGee. And I'm Steve Payne, and do we want to announce one of our other big things? Oh, yeah, yeah, go ahead. We forgot to do that up at the top, but go ahead now. Yeah, so so with this being the 500th episode, we have established ourselves about, what, two weeks ago, three weeks ago, yeah. as an official not-for-profit agency. Yeah, uh, we're so will, Yes, we are now a corporation, so to speak. <laughs> so uh, this means that we uh, can also, we are, and you won't, they want to announce this about the Historical Society thing we'll be speaking to next year, the very first right. part of next year. We'll go over our paper when we get closer to it, I'm sure. Uh, we always practice run with the hour version, and then you have to boil it down to 15 minutes. <laughs> but this is, yeah, they we're actually speaking to a bunch of historians uh, for a change, and not literary scholars, which is kind of right. interesting. Well, um, the Louisiana Studies is really mixed, but it does seem to have a predominance of, uh, like, literary people, and uh, this will be historians, so we'll have to mind our P's and Q's. <laughs> uh, <laughs> but it should be a lot, a lot of fun. I mean, these yeah. are people, like the people that attend the Louisiana Studies Conference every year, these are people that care about Louisiana's culture, Louisiana's people. Um, and I think it's, you know, hopefully this is, you know, all, all of you that listen, they, these are the kinds of people I think you hopefully would enjoy, you know, getting to know them and their work. So, Well, and always, this is a little a pro tip. When Stephen and I are at these things, we always look real carefully at all the papers and the names of the people presenting them so we can have them on the podcast, you know, what's interesting going on up there. So, yeah, it's great. For the Louisiana Anthology Podcast, I'm Grace McGee. And I'm Steve Payne. We certainly want to thank all of you for indulging us uh, with this long series of, of, of memories of the past year. We also want to thank Ed for joining us this week. Uh, we do hope that you'll all continue to join us each week and do do uh, kind of get on board with our new ventures. We're going to make some uh, little changes in the podcast uh, as well as the, 
the good project. We, we hope these will be changes for the better. But again, this is a kind of a new age that we're entering. You know, being now a not-for-profit corporation, and now uh, going into our early to middle age, so to speak, <laughs> with the project. Uh, we'll be uh, back next week with episode 501. So again, thanks to all of you. Thank you, Ed. And we hope that all of you listeners will join us for next week's edition of the Louisiana Anthology Podcast. Bye for now.